Hello and welcome to Live Life Better from Virgin Books in association with Penguin Living. I'm Dominic Frisby and so far in this series we've been looking at the impact of sports, of food, mindfulness and money on our health and happiness. But when it comes to both mental and physical well-being, one of the most important activities or non-activities is sleep. How do you get enough and how do you make sure it's the right type? Well, in the studio today, I'm joined by an elite sleep coach who works with some of the world's leading sports stars and is the author of a new book, Sleep, subtitled The Myth of Eight Hours, The Power of Naps and The New Plan to Recharge Your Body and Mind. The author is Nick Littlehales. Nick, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And you didn't sleep well last night, I gather. Or you (laughs) Go on. Why? I was looking after my grandchildren over the weekend, doing a bit of babysitting for my daughter. I think we picked up a little bug, so I've been struggling and had to get up very early this morning to come down to London. But uh, travelling back up to Manchester tonight, very impulsively to be on the breakfast red sofa tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. So uh, certainly been very, very busy over the last few months since that book came out. (laughs) Well, I hope you're well remunerated for your lack of sleep. (laughs) Um, Coming up later in the show, we'll also be hearing an extract from Arianna Huffington's latest book, The Sleep Revolution, plus thoughts on productivity and consciousness from the author of Wake Up, that is Chris Barres-Brown. But Nick, let's start with, how did you become interested in sleep? Um, I didn't actually become interested in sleep. I was messing around trying to be a golf professional way back in the late 70s, early 80s. Totally different world of sport then and was hoping to be a sort of Sevriano Ballesteros and travel the world, and that didn't happen. So Why not? I wasn't good enough. I was coaching some county players, amateur county players, young lads, and I just realised that they had seriously more talent than I had. So although I could play to what would be called scratch, level par round, I I couldn't get any better than that. Um, And in those days, if you couldn't get sort of two or three rounds under par, then you wouldn't really figure. Um, I got married, and uh, my wife-to-be was part of a family furniture business. So we got married. My first child came along, so I was trying to pay the mortgage. So I was working in a furniture shop. I happened to be selling sofa beds and sofas. Uh, I then became the general manager, so I was the manager of the store. And I saw these young sales representatives coming into the store with their cars and their briefcases and obviously earning more money than me. And I simply applied for a job. And the first job I was given was one with a company called Slumberland Beds. And I started traveling around the East Midlands, uh, basically selling beds to retailers on behalf of Slumberland. I suppose working as a golf professional you're totally driven by your own motivation get up at five o'clock in the morning hit 2,000 balls then open the shop up make clubs so nobody forced you to do anything it was totally down to your own motivation to do it and I think that sort of rubbed off into me being a sales rep I wasn't just happy wandering around in my car selling beds Uh, I wanted to do something different so I was always thinking of ways to maybe change it so within a space about six years I just went straight through the ranks and became the sales and marketing director. It became a very big company across the world with licensees everywhere. So pretty much I'd experienced all the weird things about how people sleep all over the world. 
and also got involved with the clinical side to learn more about how important it was. And I was one of the founder members of the UK Sleep Council and was chairman of that for a while. So I think I'd been studying sleep all that time ever since I became a sales rep. I'd also been trying to provide strategies for a leading brand to how to influence the consumer to take sleep seriously and obviously reflect that in the products that they sleep with. And then um, during all of that time, one thing that always sort of fascinated me was that whilst everybody would understand how important sleep is, is that pretty much everybody I'd ever met just took it for granted. And so I just became a little bit sort of disillusioned with that whole process and decided one day in a little midlife crisis moment, sat in my office to maybe see if the world of sport was doing something that I wasn't aware of, that I might be able to translate into my world. And that's when it first became, you know, my role as a sleep coach in the world of sport started. How long ago is this? We're talking about 98, back to 98. So approaching sport on the subject of sleep, when there's no sports science people around, there's no data collection, uh, it was very much sort of clip around the ear holes, get onto the pitch and do your thing. To be actually discussing sleep in that time was a pretty significant battle to get anybody to be convinced about it. Mm. Now, I think one thing I've always done, I've always slept well. <laughs> I'm quite lucky in that regard. Yeah. But I've also always valued sleep. And I think as humans, we value sleep. We've always known yeah. how important it is. And I think back to my days as a drama student. I remember Richard III, the Shakespeare play, right. when before the great battle at the end of the play, Richard III has a terrible night's sleep, plagued with dreams, and right. Richmond has a great night's sleep. Okay. And, of course, Richmond goes on to win the battle. So, you know, this is Shakespeare writing. So I think we've always <laughs> known about, subconsciously, if you like, about yeah. the important... What's new is this science yeah. of sleep. Mm. So how important is sleep in any period of time as the human wanders around over a 24-hour period then at some point you've got to go into what's classed as a sleep state basically the brain will shut everything down to a point and so you can have rejuvenation you can have repair and everything within your body because it's not functioning as an active human you can repair and rejuvenate yourself. And that's really important, particularly mentally. So as you start as an infant, this, this process is done naturally, so you, you can't override it. You'll simply sleep for a long period of time, 14, 16, 18 hours. And then as you start moving into your teens, we start to move towards this sort of eight-hour period. About 30-odd percent of your day has to be in this recovery period. So once you move into that area... You've got to be really thinking carefully about everything you do from the point of wake. Because what a lot of people get wrong or get a misinterpretation of is that they can do things in the last hour or so prior to sleep to give them better quality. Um, it might be herbal teas. It might be supplements with valerian in them or tryptophan or melatonin. Or it might be, in the old days, having a hot milk drink. But the reality is, it's everything you've done from the point of wake that's going to determine the quality of your sleep later on in that period. So you really have to try and help your brain throughout the day so that when you get to that point, when you're going to go into a sleep state, you want to get the real benefits of it. 
What are the consequences, the long-term consequences of not sleeping properly? Now, what's been coming out recently in research is where we haven't always related it to quality of sleep, but we've got, uh, they're linking it now to dementia, yeah, Alzheimer's. That's what, was, that's what I was hoping you'd say. Right. In the younger generation, we've got type 2 diabetes. We've got weight control and obesity. We've got a lot more broader range of mental issues. Am I right in saying, this is a documentary I remember narrating once, yeah. it was all about the effect of drink yeah. on the mind and right. drink and memory loss. And one of the reasons they reckoned that alcoholics have such appalling memories yeah. is that it's because the alcohol interferes with the way you sleep. Yeah. And thus, when you sleep, your memory doesn't do all the reprocessing and things that it does. Yeah. So in other words, it's not necessarily the alcohol that affects your mind. It's the effect of the alcohol on sleeping that affects your mind. That's, that's exactly right. And I think th there's so many myths and misconceptions around a lot of things that once you start looking at it, like you've just pointed out there, is... Alcohol, <laughs> in its sense, is stopping the quality of sleep. So the side effects of poor quality sleep, whether it's for an hour or eight hours or 30 minutes midday as a nap, whatever it may be, the quality of it is not there. So you're almost wasting valuable time of your life doing it without the real benefits. So not having a good approach to how you sleep and know more about it can really, really affect not only the short-term period but the longer-term period of your life with all of those things from physical to mental. Now, I worry about my kids. I try and force them to go to bed early during the week, yeah. but they won't do it. No. And then, <clears throat> of course, they're up at 7 in the morning mm. for school and they're utterly exhausted. You know, and I'm sure I was the same, but do teenage kids get up too early? Yeah, simple as that. Maybe we'll touch on it later, but there is a... If you'd just had 30 minutes in maybe a biology lesson at school about the circadian rhythms of the day, your own personal chronotype, which is your sleep characteristic, and the fact that we as humans have always slept in what's called a polyphasic way, which is shorter periods more often, we only started sleeping in one block at night when we invented the light bulb. And with this little bit of knowledge... Is you, that right? Yeah, yeah. With this little bit of knowledge, is it a boy or a girl? You got boy and girl. Boy and girl. Well, actually, boy, girl, girl, boy. But I'm talking <laughs> specifically here about the eldest boy and the eldest girl. Well, if we call them Jane and John, you spot the fact that John just wants to get up in the morning, rushes downstairs, wants to eat his breakfast, gets his laces on his shoes and wants to get going. But Jane doesn't. Drags her along. Doesn't want to have a breakfast. Yeah. Is ratty and all that sort of stuff. And basically all that is, is they might be, you've got a PM chronotype, a night timer, and you've got a morning chronotype, an am -er. A lark and an owl, you call them. There they go, right? Yeah. Now, there's a little um, way of putting it, a bit old school, I suppose, but if you looked at the human being, when we spent all our time outside, dominated by the circadian rhythms of the day, which is the sun coming up and the light and dark and temperature changes of every period, so as a human being, we've always interacted with it. So Jane and John, they're asleep, and the sun starts to come towards the horizon. So the light starts changing. Now, in John, his hormone that unsuppresses everything and allows you to be in a wake state, serotonin, starts to build. And 
as soon as that level of light gets to a point, then John is up and wants to get on. So they'll build the fire, they'll put on the coffee, they'll make the breakfast. Where Jane, her serotonin level is about one to two hours behind John. So it's not building as quickly. So John will wake Jane up, drag Jane through the morning, doing all the serious stuff, and then they'll have a little rest midday under a tree, a little bit of a respite, 20, 30 minutes, whatever, and they crack on for the rest of the day. And then as the sun starts to disappear, the light starts to change, and John moves from serotonin to melatonin, which is the suppressing hormone. So it's chill out, stop doing this, stop doing that. So it's Jane who builds the fire. It's Jane who cooks dinner because she's still lively because she's about an hour, two hours behind him. He will then go to sleep. She will go to sleep a couple of hours later. And the process goes on every day in every cycle of that process. So dragging Jane to school and sitting Jane next to John in the classroom is a nightmare for her. You've worked with Ronaldo, with Cristiano Ronaldo. Why don't, why don't you talk us through that? <laughs> a very good friend of mine was the head of sports science at Chelsea Football Club, and I knew quite a number of the sports science people there. And when uh, they ended up at Real Madrid, uh, they went through Paris Saint-Germain after Chelsea, and the team of people went to Real Madrid, and I was brought in by that team to educate all the doctors and staff about the recovery process that I do. Uh, Real Madrid's training ground is an enormous facility. Do they have sleeping quarters there? They have 80 penthouse suites, which I checked a number of them to tick the recovery box. And I did the whole facility check through the medical departments. We did a coaching session with all the staff and advised them. The whole first team squad was there, so I was able to watch them training and everything else. And Ronaldo was kicking a ball around and things like that. And he came in and was sort of earwigging along with other, because we were doing it in, a, in an open space in the training ground. Another one I worked with was Ryan Giggs a long time ago when he was looking to try and carry on playing for a long, long time, and he did. Uh, he managed to get well into his 40s before he stopped. So he was a unique character. And I think anybody wanting to do well in their jobs or get into sport or have these top athletes as mentors, then uh, they do work extremely hard and invest in themselves and certainly take notice of people like me uh, and various other coaches as if there's a way to do it, then you do it and you will benefit from it big time with your sport and life. Let's talk about technique of sleep and sleeping techniques because you, you kind of touched on it a number of times. First, the myth of the eight hours. Well, the book's titled The Myth because as it was all being written and the publishers and everything else, it's sort of what was clear to them and is clear to everybody on this planet that they think they need eight hours. They've heard that somewhere and it's true. 30-odd percent of your day equates to about eight hours. But the reality is trying to do it in one block at night with all our different occupations in a 24-7 world means you simply find it very, very difficult. So a lot of people go, I try for eight hours, but they wake up and go to the toilet halfway through, they get disturbed, they get too hot, their partners, they've got different times of waking up and going to sleep and all that sort of stuff, and they've got different occupations. You know, there's pilots up in the air when you're supposed to be asleep and doctors the and bin nurses. Bin men. Bin men. And you just go... The dog. I, I just thought to myself, have I ever met anybody in the whole period of my life in sleep where somebody actually slept for eight hours between two fixed points, back-to-back, -back, seven days a week, 365 days of the year? And the answer was, I never met anybody who does that. 
So that whole process of the myth has been quite as a, a revolution to people reading the book. So if somebody sleeps for two or three hours, wakes up around two or three o'clock and then stays up for an hour doing things and then goes back to sleep for two or three hours, it's completely natural. So stop worrying about trying to sleep all the way through because even the Victorians didn't do that. Yeah, they had their second sleep. They had their second sleep. And, you know, it's not something that the Spanish do because they just like some time off. The siesta period between one and three is when, as human beings, part of that rhythm process, circadian rhythm process, the urge and need to sleep for us as humans is at its peak. It's the graveyard slot in business, you know? Talking straight after lunch, presenting straight after lunch is difficult. And that's where you would take a shorter sort of micro nap, controlled recovery period, You'd get one there and you'd get one early evening. You'd sleep in shorter periods more often. So it's not the myth of the time, eight hours, but we work very much on working 90-minute cycles. So five 90-minute cycles is 7.5 hours, right? So what we look at is getting five cycles in any 24-hour period, not just all at once. So in sport, as you well know, whether it's football and kickoffs at eight o'clock, getting back at three in the morning, yeah. swimmers in the at Rio Olympics, they're still comedians. Yeah, yeah, comedians. Comedians, uh, terrible presenters. Um, yeah, their schedules all all over the place, and so they cannot even try to sleep like that. Um, talk us through the different stages of sleep. Stage you know, REM sleep, stage one, two, three, and four, and so on. Mm. I tend to get a much better understanding and so the listener gets a much better reward is if you think about a set of stairs and when you're at the top of the stairs you're ready to enter sleep and at the top of the stairs there's all these light sleep stages and at the bottom is this REM and non-REM deeper sleep stages now those are deemed to be the more beneficial but they're more difficult to get so if you look at it sort of every 90 minutes is a cycle and you want to Get to the top, go down the stairs, continue to the bottom, wallow in the good deep sleep for about 20% of any period, come back up to the top of the stairs and do it again. For a lot of people, they get stuck at the top of the stairs and never go down the bottom. So for a whole eight or nine hours, whatever it is they allocate to sleep, they're just literally floating around in the top, getting a level of recovery, but not getting any of the good stuff. So they're always in a state of fatigue, always in a state of fatigue. And females are more likely to get stuck in those lighter sleep stages because of their nurturing tendency, because they are always alert and aware and prepared for looking after infants. So they stay in the top all the time. A lot of, lot of females get stuck in those particular areas. So I like to sort of try to get people to think about Yes, there are some good stages. If you come to the top of the stairs and you're completely knackered from whatever you've been doing and your head hits the pillow type scenario, then you'll just fly to the bottom of the stairs, get into that deep stuff, come back up, go down again for a couple of cycles, say three hours, and then you'll wake up and feel quite refreshed around two or three o'clock in the morning. And you go, what's this all about? is because that's what happens. Your brain has taken over and dumped you into that deep sleep, and now you're awake. The other one that happens is if you really are messing around at the top of the stairs for two, three, four cycles, then when you get towards the end of that period, the brain will actually dump you into deep sleep, trying to catch up. 
And that's when the alarm goes off and you feel like you've been run over by a bus. A 90-minute cycle could be far more beneficial than two or three hours doing it, getting stuck at the top of the stairs. So tell us how to get to the, the right <laughs> stages of sleep quicker and better. I think it's just being prepared for it. If you start to approach sleep as mental and physical recovery periods, so it's not about wasting time, it's about this process, then if you go throughout your day and every 90 minutes, you need to get little tiny recovery breaks in to help your brain. Because we've got information overload all the time now with everything we're doing. So you just need to walk away from what you're doing. You know, go and have a cup of herbal tea or if you've got a two-litre bottle of water on your desk, put it back in the canteen so you have to go and get it. You know, going back to some sort of more processes and daily activities that create little recovery breaks, being able to use mindfulness, which is great, meditation to help to have these little breaks, to have a nice balance between exercise and recovery. Just all these little things start to build up. I find exercise unbelievably important in terms of getting to sleep just for the simple fact that it makes you tired. Well... It sounds basic, but it, it's... It, it isn't, it isn't. It's a very... There's a lot of things go on when you're doing exercise and uh, it's escaping from the world, isn't it? You know, when I hear people sort of, I try to get my kids to shut their tech down at night because the blue light and they're on it all the time and gaming. Hang on, this is their world. What you really should do is encourage from day one with your children, as you mentioned earlier, is start to bring things into their daily routine where it actually is a tech break. So taking the dog for a walk is a tech break. When you go swimming, when you go riding bikes, you know, all of these little things are all areas where we're away from the world. And so exercise, to some, is important because of what they do. But to others, it's a great way to create space for you to just be a human. Now, obviously, we can't talk about sleep without talking about dreams. So I thought we'd leave this section to another author. She is the co-founder of the Huffington Post. Here is Arianna Huffington reading from her book, The Sleep Revolution. Dreams have always been an important part of my life. In my 20s, fascinated by the work of Carl Jung, I started keeping a daily dream journal. The majority of my dreams were garbled, sometimes surreal versions of my daily life, but there were also flashes of genuine insight. As I recounted in Thrive, one particular dream was so clear and so powerful that it has stayed with me ever since. And with the passage of time, has even become clearer and more significant. In the dream, I was on a train going home to God. Bear with me. It was a long journey, and everything happening in my life was scenery along the way. Some of it was beautiful. I wanted to linger over it a while and perhaps hold on to it, or even take it with me. Other parts of the journey were spent grinding through a barren, ugly countryside. Either way, the train moved on, and pain came whenever I would cling to the scenery, beautiful or ugly, rather than accept that it was all grist for the meal, containing some hidden purpose, a hidden blessing, or a bit of wisdom. 
Over the years, as I've revisited variations of this dream again and again, I've come to see it as a great lesson for living life, as if, as the poet Rumi put it, everything is rigged in our favor. Through our dreams, sleep opens up a pathway to other dimensions, other times, other parts of ourselves, and to deeper insights that lie beyond the reach of our waking consciousness. As the Tibetan Buddhist Karthang Tulku put it, dreams are a reservoir of knowledge and experience, yet they're often overlooked as a vehicle for exploring reality. Max Planck, the winner of the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1918, considered matter as derivative from consciousness and consciousness as fundamental, and consciousness includes dreams. The timelessness of dreams, the wildly different narrative rules, the ways we move through the dream world, all of these allow us a unique access to our intuition and inner wisdom. We live in a world in which we relentlessly track our time, revere data over wisdom, and we are consumed with our work and our devices from the moment we get up to the second we drift off to sleep. That's why the mental real estate that our dreams occupy is more valuable than ever. Technology may let us travel across time and space in an instant, but our dreams allow us to span deeper parts of ourselves. Words by Arianna Huffington there from her book The Sleep Revolution on the importance of dreams and unlocking that state of unconsciousness. Our dreams let us explore deeper parts of ourselves. How about that? Now, Nick, we were talking earlier about the different stages of sleep. How important is the dream state? The dream state is important. Some people will experience quite violent dreams. They'll remember everything and they can even sort of experience actually being physically in a dream and you've got night terrors where it goes a bit too far but I think the nice process of being able to dream is just is a nice relaxed approach for your brain it's just playing around with the information that it's got compartmentalizing things it creates a nice sort of relationship with you and you as a person and how you relate to other things so if you are dreaming it probably indicates that you're down in those deeper sleep stages which is a good place to be. Now, let's talk about optimising your sleeping conditions, and I imagine with your time at Slumberland, you know all about this. <laughs> well, all the time, I was designing products for people to sleep on and with. And you're trying to take all the information you know, about the importance of sleep and how that translates into product. But generally, because the consumer comes into the marketplace so infrequently, the average replacement cycle at one point in my career was 20 years plus. Um, so the relationship with how important this product is, it is a bed, but does it really affect how we sleep? Because if it did, why are we only changing it every 25 years? So it's kind of like, oh, it's important to get a good mattress. What, twice in your life? Get real. I want one every year. It just doesn't work. So what you really want is that what you're sleeping on wants to feel like it's been designed uh, like a pair of trainers. Now, these are soft, breathable materials. They take your full standing weight with ease. Now, most people don't sleep with stuff like that. 
They sleep with things like leather shoes and high heels and Wellington boots. They're just not designed to be with you for a long period of time. They buy things that are too hard because you think that a nice firm mattress that'll last for a long, long time will be good for your back and probably repair it. But you never stand there in any bed shop or online and go, that mattress is for anybody. So if I'm walking in with a 200 kg, 6 foot 10 rugby player and his wife, to create an example, is a 60 kilogram professional cyclist who I can sit in my hand and you telling me that everything that mattress will do will do it for these two people. There's a lot of marketing statements like this mattress will give you the perfect night's sleep. What on earth is that? And uh, we so get... how do you know what the right product is then? If anybody listening to this wants to do a quick check tonight, you adopt what's the fetal position on the floor in your bedroom and you will notice a massive gap between your cheek and the floor because it's not releasing under the shoulder. Now, that's where you put pillows to try and support the head. But as soon as you move to your front to release that pressure in that free-fall position, you try and take the pillow away because it's not only is your head twisted at right angles, it's also pushed up. Not good for anything. So if you then adopt that fetal position on your current mattress and you've got any gap at all between your cheek and the surface of that mattress, and quite clearly that mattress is not releasing to your body weight and shape. In other words, it doesn't matter what it's made of, who's made it, how much it costs, it's, not, it's aggravating you all night long. So you're going to have to use pillows in certain positions and get rid of them in others. You're just floating around in light sleep stages, never going into the good stuff. When did you last buy a mattress? Me? Yeah. Never have. So I just always constantly designing my own mattresses for athletes. And you'd be surprised. You know, you mention a lot of elite athletes around the world and it's talked about in the book. And you'd think, oh, they must have this fantastic go faster stripe thing with springs everywhere and memory foam and that's it. And, oh, amazing stuff, yeah. Well, actually, people like British Cycling in Rio, in their accommodation, were sleeping on my sleep kits. And they were a five centimetre bit of foam and a seven and a half centimetre bit of foam. And because when they're travelling, we might use the one layer on top of a mattress or we might use the whole lot on the floor. Uh. Right? Okay, it's not everyday foam, right? It's a highly pressurised, sensitive, viscoelastic type foam that uh, is all about G-forces and releasing and balancing. Okay, it's a special foam, but it's not, you know, specialised technically. It's simply you take the athlete, you put them on the one layer, if they get that balance completely right, I'm just looking at them, that lovely postural line, cheeks against the layer, that's theirs. Put somebody with a bit more weight, and when you look at them on there, you just go, right, put the extra five centimetre layer, now we've got them, no pillow. Pillows are a waste of time, they just get in the way. They create snoring, mouth breathing, dry mouth. This they... is not for everyone, yeah. just some people. Everybody, everybody. Athletes are no different to us all. So we, we are making a mistake. How many pillows do you have on your bed? None. I, the, there are pillows on the bed because there's lots of other things I do in bed. But um, when you're actually going into sleep, then the layers that are under me, you'd find them, you'd go, oh, my God, this is so soft, which is a negative word in mattresses. Yeah. But not when you're talking about trainers. 
So anyone listening to this wants to know what make of mattress to go and buy. What do we buy? What you do is if you're buying online, then you're buying blind. But if you walk into a shop, there are lots of manufacturers all making claims. There's all different things from foam to latex to water to air to pocket sprung, coil sprung, you name it, with all different types of fillings. All you do is get onto any mattress, adopt that fetal position, and if you've got somebody with you, or you can take a selfie, just bring your arm up, and if you notice you've got anything more than a couple of hands gap between your face and the mattress, get off it and go and try and find another one. It doesn't matter what it's made of. It doesn't matter what's in it. If it doesn't do that, it's always going to aggravate and reduce the quality of your recovery every time you're on it. You're listening to the Live Life Better podcast with me, Dominic Frisby, and my guest, Nick Littlehales, who is an elite sleep coach. We've been talking today about the different stages of sleep and unconsciousness, but let's talk about consciousness in a different context. It's estimated that over 80% of our waking time is spent on autopilot because when we're doing routine activities, our subconscious takes over to save energy. But what if you could optimise your time awake to increase your conscious period to become more productive? Here's author Chris Barres-Brown to explain the concepts in his book. It's called Wake Up. Hi, I'm Chris Barres-Brown and I've just written a book called Wake Up, How to Escape a Life on Autopilot. I hear Dominic today is talking about states of consciousness, and that's exactly what autopilot is about. It's um, it's about understanding that our conscious brain, which is great for logic and analysis and rationality, is a very small part of our overall processing. It's only about you know five percent of our overall capacity, whereas our subconscious, you know, basically is the rest. Now, I'm sure you've all had the experience of driving a long distance down a road, arriving at the destination, and not remembering large chunks of the journey. That happens because our brain tries to save energy by doing things we've always done. Because our conscious brain uses loads of fuel, it's like a V8 gas guzzling machine. So the way we save energy is we get our subconscious to take over when we do anything that looks familiar. So in this particular case, you get into a car, you see the steering wheel, the seat, the road, your subconscious go, hey, I've seen that before, I know how to look after this, and it kicks in. Saving us loads of energy and helping us still arrive safely at our destination. Now, we know it happens when we drive cars. Truth is, it happens every day of our life. It happens when we are at work, when we are with our loved ones, when we are living our lives. So Wake Up is all about learning how to deliberately switch off autopilot at certain times during the day so that we can be more conscious, more connected and lead a more extraordinary life. So most change programs involve doing big, drastic things and they often don't have much success, largely because too big a change scares us. So we just revert to norm. So my belief is if you want to make change happen, make it simple, accessible, little things that you can do every day that have some visceral benefit immediately. So Wake Up is designed to do just that. It's not stuff that goes on your to-do list. It's not stuff that's onerous. A simple example of that is one of the exercises to start the day by just talking about what you're excited about with your family over breakfast. And then you finish the day by talking about what you were grateful for. It doesn't take lots of time. You don't have to make a big effort, but actually it can have a huge impact on your overall well-being. 
another one would certainly be dancing. I had no idea how many closet dancers there are in this world. How many people who, when they shake their booty and get some rhythm happening, feel so much better about their lives. And all I did was say, you know, once a day, just, you know, crank up your, your favourite tune to 10 and get a wiggle on. Um, and everybody who took part has carried on doing that because they found it had such a benefit. So I invented the 54 things that are in the book, 54 activities or exercises that you can do. But as time has gone on, we have adapted them. We have learned from other people about what they've done. And actually, the whole idea is that that base grows massively. So there is an app that goes with the book, which is also called Wake Up. And people can load up their own experiences and activities onto that. So we've now got thousands of different things that people can do. And my belief is that the more that we can share and learn from each other, obviously, the more choice that we have. So although there's 54 in the book, I'm hoping that, you know, before long, we have hundreds of thousands of things that people can do. So for the last 12 months, we've been experimenting with a load of bloggers who have been trying out the exercises and seeing what worked best for them. And it's been fascinating because different people react to different experiments and activities in different ways. So one of the ones that I found has created a lot of energy was one which we call sharing the love. So one of the bloggers who uh, runs a pub, and as he said, um, he grew up expressing his emotions with his fists. Sharing the love seemed quite intimidating because what you have to do with that is you just find people who uh, are in your life and just find one person a day and tell them what it is that you love about them. And he found it amazingly impactful because, number one, it deepened his relationship with people that he lived with. Um, on the second point, he found that because he was sharing the love, he started to prime his selective attention to spot more often when people were being brilliant in his life. So therefore, everything started to look a bit more rosy and he started to feel more positive. So that was one that was quite surprising as far as its impact's concerned. But I came across an amazing chap at a, at a wedding. His name is Ernie. And he's one of these guys who just had that sparkle in his eye and he just had more energy about him than most people you meet. And when I asked him what his secret was, what he said to me was, um, you know, it's going to sound a bit weird, but um, what I do every time I go to the loo is I do 20 press-ups. And I went, that is freakishly weird, actually, Ernie, but um, there's something in it. And, and what it meant for him was that every hour or so, he n number one, um, he got some blood pumping around his system and therefore um, got more conscious so he could look at his day and go, actually, am I doing the right thing? Do, you know, do I have the right energy? And number two, he was incredibly fit. And I just thought, you know, if only we had a few more things like that. So the feedback we've had from people adopting these little behaviours that have been tiny nudges to help them become more conscious has been extraordinary. So from his little piece of inspiration to what we've done now, I, I could never have predicted how far we've come because not only are people saying that they feel happier, they feel as if they're more conscious and more awake and they're leading a more extraordinary life. People who have had quite significant mental health challenges such as anxiety, self-esteem issues, confidence, depression, um, have moved significantly against those challenges just by changing one thing a day. So I'm really excited about the possibility. I, I don't think we've even started yet. We're going to hopefully going to do some quite interesting research over the next six months with some quite big partners to find out exactly how we can package this to make sure that people who have bigger challenges have more support. You're listening to the Live Life Better podcast from Virgin Books in association with Penguin Living. And that was Chris Barres-Brown there talking about his book, Wake Up. I'm Dominic Frisby and I'm joined here today in the studio by Nick Littlehales. Nick, we've just heard Chris refer to the fact that around 80% of our waking time is spent on autopilot. Mm. 
if we were to sleep more, do you believe we could access more of that conscious time while we're awake? In other words, can we improve? Most definitely. I think what I've seen in the last five, six, seven years in sport is the use of stimulations. So caffeine, energy drinks, all those types of things, and also sleeping tablets on the increase. And so what people are doing is trying to use stimulations to overcome fatigue. So what you're basically doing is if you can redefine your approach and get this under control and not waste valuable time sleeping without its benefits, then what happens is it's a bit like there's your personal best person about four or five metres in front of you. And over time, you are now four or five metres behind where you should be. And you haven't spotted it because it's been going on gradually. So you think this is your personal best because you're smashing every day, doing what you're doing and everything else. But the reality is you're behind the game. So when you start to get hold of your recovery, then performance benefits start to come both mentally and physically. So decision-making, mood, motivation, alertness, awareness, recovering from injury times, going a little bit faster, quicker, making the right decisions. All of these things start to come through. And that's why in sport, it's the difference between a gold medal or losing. The accumulation of incremental gains. That's the one. Now, um, do you have anything more, more to say about siestas and naps? Yeah. The one powerful tool that we use with elite athletes, but it applies to everybody, is when you look at our natural process and when we invented the light bulb, which we talked about before, sleeping ensures periods more often. So between one and three every day, it's totally natural for you to do a short period of sleep. 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes tops. Pilots do it on planes, right? Towel over the head, headphones on, listen to something, zone out, haven't left the cockpit, co-pilot's still there, 35 off the floor, 500 mile an hour with a tube of people who want to get on the ground. How do they nap? It's a, it's a mindset. Change the word. It's a mental and physical recovery period that takes 20 minutes that will raise your alertness up to 54%. And now I'm going to really enjoy my evening and I won't have to sleep as much at night. So napping is not old people sat around the fire. Napping is not snoozers or losers. The people who nap win because they sleep less, get better recovery and smash their schedules. Nappers are smashers. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't you give us, I don't know, three top tips for improving our sleep as we close, Nick? The key ones have to be the the first three things from uh, my sort of seven key recovery factors for sleep. One is literally just learn more about the circadian rhythms of the day. This is sun up and sundown. You're not having to invest in anything. Just put it in the browser Get more awareness of it and you'll start to realise there's certain things every day that you can start making little changes to unlock better recovery. The other one is to know your chronotype. You may not be able to change your occupation and everything, everybody around it, but just realise that in the morning I do all my business accounts and everything adds up and I make profit. If I try to do that in the afternoon, I'm wondering whether one and one is two. If you know your chronotype then you can avoid certain things or stop them impacting on you so much. Really important. Or choosing the wrong job. And the other one is to stop thinking about sleep in hours, is to shift it to 90-minute cycles. And now you can start to chop up your day in 90-minute periods. It creates all of those little opportunities throughout the day for little recovery breaks, two or three minutes, and then you go all the way through and suddenly you can start to explore whether you're a three-cycle, four-cycle, five-cycle or six-cycle person. And once you start getting there, 
things really do start to change. Great stuff. Well, Sleep by Nick Littlehales is out now at all good bookstores. And Nick, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, as well as by reading your book, what, what, how else can they follow you? We're on all the main social media channels through Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, at Sport Sleep Coach. It's sportsleepcoach.com. And on there, there are various coaching services that people can access. And we are providing free content all the time through blogs, through Twitter, really putting out a lot of great information all the time if uh, people want to link up with us. Well, Nick, it's been a real pleasure and some really interesting stuff there. Thank you very much. Thank you. So Sleep by Nick Littlehales is out now at all good bookstores, as is The Sleep Revolution by Arianna Huffington and Wake Up by Chris Barres-Brown. A big thank you to them as well. Remember, you can find out more about the authors featured in this episode at virgin.com, where you'll also find more motivational tips, podcasts and advice. And we'd love to hear from you. Get involved with the conversation on Twitter at PenguinLivingUK using the hashtag LiveLifeBetter. Live Life Better is a Pixiu production for Virgin Books in association with Penguin Living. Join us again in two weeks' time. But for now, from me, Dominic Frisby, it's goodbye. Goodbye.